welcome back to What's Killing My Kale. This is Season 3, Episode 5, and it's the first part of a two-part series on Spotted Wing Drosophila. This podcast is co-hosted by Natalie Hoytel and myself, Annie Claude, two University of Minnesota horticulture extension educators working with fruit and vegetable producers. In this episode, we talk with Gigi Giacomo about the economics of SWD management. Almost two years ago now, we aired a two-part series on spotted wing drosophila with Mary Rogers and Jim Riddle. You can find those episodes if you scroll down in your podcast feed to 2018. Well, a lot of research has been done since then, and a lot of farmers have learned a lot of new things about this insect through their own experiences, so it's time for an update. Just a quick recap about what we talked about in 2018 before we jump in. At that point, researchers at University of Minnesota, including Mary Rogers and Bill Hutchinson, were working hard to research ways to manage this pest through things like exclusion netting and pruning. Pruning studies on blueberries were showing that pruning bushes more severely could move harvest up, potentially before SWD moves in. It also opens up the canopy more for better spray penetration of either organic or conventional insecticides. At that point, exclusion netting was also showing a lot of promise on a research scale as a non-chemical way to keep out SWD, and farmers and researchers were starting to figure out ways to make this work on a real-life farm scale. Jim Riddle at Blue Fruit Farm told us about how he reduces SWD on his organic berries by harvesting every day and refrigerating the berries immediately after harvesting. Now that we're two years down the line, I don't know where time goes, we're going to check back in with Mary, and we're first going to hear from Gigi Giacomo, who has been researching the economics of SWD control measures. Let's go there now. Hi, Gigi. Thank you for joining us. Thanks, Annie. I'm really glad to be here. Awesome. Well, we're glad you're doing the work that you are with spotted wing drosophila. Um, for the remainder of this podcast episode, we can just refer to spotted wing drosophila as SWD. Okay, sounds good. So I was going to end with this question, but I thought it would be more fun to actually start with it since we're in the middle of the pandemic right now and everybody might just need something fun to think about. So is it true that the Twin Cities consume more berries per household than any other city in the U.S.? (laughs) Yes, it is. Um, Driscoll's uh, reported in July of 2017 that the Twin Cities households consumed 132% more fresh raspberries on average than U.S. households, which explains why they named us the raspberry consumption capital of America. Um, and as, <laughs> so with that kind of a name, I thought I'd better look into this a, a bit more. And so as part of our research, I quantified Minnesota raspberry consumption and estimated that Minnesotas consume about five and a half million pounds of fresh raspberries every year. (laughs) Now our growers are producing um, 1.4 million pounds of raspberries when we factor in yield losses due to SWD, which we'll talk about, I'm sure in a little bit. Uh, But to me, that says that Minnesota raspberry growers really have an opportunity to increase sales of locally grown raspberries if we can reduce SWD-related losses on existing farms and and give growers, you know, a reason to expand their acreage. Yeah, absolutely. So basically, we eat a lot of berries in Minnesota, and there's probably a pretty big demand for more local berries. And yeah, if we can um, fight SWD and not let that ruin everything, we can really meet a market demand here. So 
That is so cool and ridiculous that we eat so many raspberries in this state. I love that fact. <laughs> I know. Who would have thought, right? It's probably our, our, um, our desire for all that sunshine and, and, you know, fresh goodness when we live in a state with a lot of cold and snow, right? Yeah, absolutely. I know that there's a time in every summer when I just start getting a craving for raspberry pie. <laughs> you know, it's just You're that time of year. You're making me hungry right now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and as I understand it, you're doing a lot and you have done a lot over the past couple of years to help make sure that Minnesota growers and not just Minnesota, but I feel like this applies to a lot of growers in the upper Midwest can keep producing berries despite SWD. So it sounds like you've dedicated a lot of time in the last couple of years to understanding how SWD is impacting berry producers in Minnesota and the economic impact it's having. And I think this is really an important contribution because we need to understand the scope of the problem in order to best fix it. So what is the economic toll that SWD is playing on our Minnesota berry growers? Yeah, you know, SWD has turned what I think has always been a relatively low input, high value, you know, fruit crops like raspberries into more management intensive enterprises with shrinking profit margins. You know, it was something, berries have always been something that growers, you know, could, could make relatively, you know, I think a good income at. Um, we have a lot of UPIC operations. Most of our berry growers are UPIC. Um, and so it was a nice way to add income, you know, to their operation. Uh, during the during the summer season and you know early fall, but SWD now is economically affecting growers in several ways and making it much more difficult for them to break even or you know make money. Um, the first is in the form of reduced income through yield loss. So according to our grower surveys, uh, which I think we'll talk a little bit more about uh, in a bit, but according to our grower surveys, SWD has on average accounted for a 20% yield loss for raspberry growers, uh, a 20% yield loss for strawberry growers, and about 5% yield loss for blueberry growers. So this means that raspberry and strawberry growers were unable to harvest or market 20% of their crops due to SWD. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's pretty significant. And the retail value of those losses uh, for raspberries, for example, is about $2.36 million per year for one year. Um, we, haven't, we haven't done the calculations for uh, strawberries yet, but, but we know that you know, we have more strawberry growers or at least more acreage in the state of Minnesota um, than we do raspberry growers, so, or raspberry acreage. Uh, so I, I expect that the strawberry losses would be just as significant. Okay. Um, and if I can just say a couple more things, yeah, um, yeah, you know, that, those yield losses don't take into account um, the, the losses to the grower in the form of input costs, such as, mm -hmm. you know, what they're paying for pesticides and equipment and labor to implement a lot of their control strategies. Um, so most growers, uh, both organic and non-organic, are utilizing very labor intensive strategies to try to control SWDs, SWDs such as um, you know, increased harvest frequency, they're harvesting instead of two times a week, um, you know, or three times a week on weekends, 
now they're going out and harvesting, you know, three, four, five times a week. Mm-hmm. Um, they're doing more canopy pruning to open up the raspberry canopies and allow uh, light and airflow, you know, into the, the lower part of the plants. Um, and they're doing a lot of spraying. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and then finally, I think we have to factor in that opportunity cost of lost seasonal sales. Um, remember, we just talked about how many raspberries Minnesotans eat um, and that there are opportunities for growers to, to expand their sales. Well, you know, that's a loss too uh, that yeah. SWD is, has created. Yeah. And I feel like the economics and the research really tie in together a lot um, in this. And so that's why it's it's so valuable that you're working with Mary Rogers Lab um, to try to solve this problem together because we talk about these uh, solutions that researchers are coming up with for SWD, which are extremely valuable, but we always have to think about the economics behind them. And that's something our growers ask us about a lot too with every uh, research finding that we put out the question is well what are the economics of this so absolutely if you know it might work it might you know we might solve the problem of you know swd um but if it but if it you know the costs out if the costs outweigh the benefits then uh there's you know there's really no point so yeah yeah so by working together on next is the cost benefit analysis for a lot of these different strategies yeah absolutely so how have you been surveying growers to learn about this? Um, like basically tell us about your project and how you're getting these results. Are you going to the growers directly, sending out a survey? How does it work? Yeah, we've, um, we've conducted several surveys now. Um, we did two electronic surveys to all Minnesota fruit growers in 2017. And then we did another follow-up telephone survey um, with individual raspberry growers in 2018. And um, the first electronic grower, electronic uh, survey went out to 157 Minnesota fruit growers, and we had a 52% response rate. It was primarily raspberry, strawberry, and blueberry growers. Um, and our objective there was really to learn more about how SWD was affecting Minnesota farms and businesses. And to gain a better understanding of the steps growers were taking to control, you know, this invasive pest. And from that first survey, we learned that about 71% of growers who responded were experiencing some level of SWD infestation. And the range of crop losses was quite staggering. Uh, Raspberry growers told us that they lost anywhere from two to 100% of their crop Strawberry growers uh, lost, reported losing one to 90% of their crop. And it really wasn't for lack of trying to control this pest. Um, 74% of growers told us that they were actively managing to try to reduce SWD infestation. Okay. And so that leads us into the the next question, because you're not only talking to growers about the economic toll that it's playing on them, but you're talking to them also about what methods they're using to control SWD, right? Because that's a big part of the economic equation. Right. So what did you find are some of the most popular methods that growers are using to combat SWD? Well, pesticides are number one. Um, You know, both conventional pesticides like Mustang Max and the, you know, OMRI-approved organic biopesticides such as spinosad. 
Um, but growers are also using other cultural practices such as canopy pruning with raspberries, which we, you know, I mentioned earlier, they're harvesting more frequently and they're practicing good sanitation. They are removing and disposing of any cull fruit from the field. So that would be, you know, they're culling the fruit as they're picking and they're even asking some of their, you know, customers to do this. They'll send them out in the fields with two buckets. You know, a customer hmm. will have one bucket for the good berries and another bucket for the bad berries. Um, and then they're also going through, you know, at the end of the day and any berries that have fallen to the ground or, um, you know, landed there otherwise, um, you know, they're, they're cleaning those, those berries up. So they're trying to, you know, reduce any, um, you know, anything that would remain for the SWD um, flies to lay their, their eggs in. They're trying to clean all of that out. Um, and, you know, so they're, what I, I guess what I found most interesting though, is that growers are, who are managing for SWD are using at least two to three different control, control strategies. So they're not relying on just one. Mm -hmm. um, you know, even the growers that are applying pesticides are also practicing some of these other um, control strategies. Mm -hmm. And I think they're very cognizant that, you know, pesticide of pesticide resistance issues. And so, you know, the, the trouble is, though, at this point, we just don't have enough research to know which strategy is working best. And that's why Mary and other researchers are continuing to field test new and existing control strategies. Yeah, I think that's such a good point to get across that most growers are using, did you say two to three? Yeah, so um, in strategies. Our, yeah, for raspberry growers, it was two different strategies. The median was two strategies. Okay. And for strawberry growers, it was three. Okay, and that was across both organic and uh, growers who are, are using conventional pesticides, right? Right, right, absolutely. And, you know, I think, um, that's just so important for us to talk about and, and make clear that just because farmer, some farmers are using conventional pesticides, it's not as if that's the only strategy that they're using. All of our growers are being very smart about um, using lots of non-chemical strategies as well, and they're very aware that this is necessary. We have to take an integrated approach. So when I looked at the, the data that you had found, um, which I, you know, I did before um, we had this conversation, I was really happy to see that data actually um, put out in a visual form. So according to this research, do the approaches for managing SWD differ much between organic and conventional growers? We've kind of been getting to this question, but I wanted to ask it, you know, more explicitly. Do you feel like there's a lot yeah. of similarities in approaches? Yeah, no, I think that's a, I think that's a really good question, Annie. Um, and it's something that I took a close look at when I was analyzing the survey results. Um, I was surprised to find that yield losses were almost identical on both organic and non-organic farms. Um, both groups, um, you know, reported a median of 20% loss for raspberries. Um, but there were differences hmm. in the type of control strategies implemented. So even though both groups are implementing a variety of um, you know, control practices, the type of practices did differ. Um, so non-organic growers did tend to rely on that rotation of pesticides in combination with usually one cultural control. Okay. Um, and then organic growers, on the other hand, were relying, were relying much more on solely on cultural controls, um, but 
but some were using the pesticides or biopesticides as well. And I would have to say, you know, um, the increased harvest frequency was probably the, the technique or practice that um, the organic growers were using the most. Um, and let's see, I'm trying to think if there was anything else. Um, but I, I think, okay, so I, on the telephone survey, when I spoke with both organic and non-organic growers, and I should say that, um, that for the telephone survey, I ended up talking to a lot more non-organic growers, but for our electronic survey, we had about equal um, you know, numbers of organic and non-organic report back. Um, but when I, when I spoke with folks for our telephone survey um, and I asked them to estimate the amount of time dedicated to SWD um, during pre-harvest, harvest, and post-harvest season, we found that non-organic growers were actually spending more time on SWD management than the organic. So our hmm. non-organic growers spent 20 hours per week per acre just during that pre-post, pre-harvest and post-harvest season. Those, which is about 12 weeks. Um, so they spent about 20 hours per week per acre on SWD controls. And that does not include the actual harvesting though. I have to say that. So it would just include mm -hmm. any of those um, other strategies or practices. Um, whereas organic growers were only spending about 15 hours per week. And so that, Where, that does make a difference. That does, you know, add up. Where do you think that, difference in time is coming from you know i think i think the grow, the non-organic growers are spending a lot of time on the spring you know they're they mm -hmm. have a rotation they're out there you know they're really carefully timing their spray intervals um they're getting out there you know a lot more um i would have thought that the organic growers would have had more time because it seems like the cultural controls would be more labor intensive but I think because mm -hmm. the non-organic growers are doing both, you know, the sp spraying and the cultural controls, they are in the end spending more time out there. Right. So you were saying that the time spent controlling SWD was a bit higher for conventional growers compared to organic growers. And I'm curious, um, like where the discrepancy is, do you think, with that? And, and did that factor in harvest timing? No. So first of all, the the hours that we measured did not factor in harvest time. Um, and that's because about 90% of our growers are managing U-pick operations. And so with so many pickers and harvesters out there, um, you know, families with kids, it just simply wasn't um, feasible to efficiently measure the harvest time that was going on on these farms. Uh, and so um, so we did not measure that, but the times do include all other strategies, control strategies for SWD. So the, the application of pesticides or biopesticides and all those cultural controls that we've been talking about. Um, and, and you asked where, where the discrepancy in time comes from. We only surveyed about 35 growers by telephone. Um, and that's where we asked some of those detailed questions. And so I'd like to do more follow-up to, you know, really dig into that question because I'm curious myself. But based on, you know, those 35 growers that we talked to, 
Um, I think it has to do with the non-organic growers spending so much time on the spraying. You know, they're very careful about spray intervals and they are really staying on top of it. So I think they're spending more time out in the field doing that plus the cultural controls, whereas the organic growers are doing less, you know, some of them are doing spraying, but they're doing less of it. And, you know, they're spending more time on cultural controls, including that increased harvest frequency. So I think if we could measure that, the harvest frequency, then, you know, we might get a clearer picture too. Uh, and, and the organic growers might be spending just as much time as the non-organic growers. Um, and so we have funding in, uh, or a proposal in right now for funding uh, with Mary Rogers and her crew. And we're really hoping to be able to do some field tests um, this next year or two um, where we're, we're doing some timed, you know, um, trials looking at, at how much time it takes to harvest. Um, so we'll, we'll see. We'll, we'll, it'll be interesting to see what, what those studies can tell us. Yeah, I'm glad that there's more research still happening. I think this is such an important question. And um, when I talk to growers about SWD throughout the conference season in the summer, you know, this is one of the big topics that comes up. So keep up the good work. And I, I want to make sure we touch on the importance of survey participation. Growers have so many surveys that they're asked to participate I know. in throughout the year. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I, I've sent out surveys as well. And it can be hard for growers to filter through them and prioritize which surveys are most important to them. So in your words, why is it important for growers to participate in survey work like this on pest management, on SWD and economics? Yeah, I cannot underestimate the importance of surveys. And I suppose everyone thinks their survey is the most important, right? <laughs> um, but it's the growers who really guide our work they are helping us prioritize research efforts by identifying you know, what is most critical to their business. Uh, we're already using the information that we've gleaned from the surveys to establish our next round of field research. And we hope to be testing out you know, those cultural controls identified by the growers from our surveys. So um, you know, it's the growers that really help us identify the practices that are, you know, that, that they're trying out, many of them are experimenting on their own and, and they don't know if those strategies are even working. So we're, mm -hmm. you know, we're able to identify some of those novel and new practices through our surveys and then we're able to go out and rigorously test them in the field. So, um, you know, it's, I really, our research is so grower driven um, that, that, you know, the survey work is, is truly critical. And then once, you know, so you're saying the survey work is used to get grant funding and to inform the research projects that are done. And I want to expand on that a little bit to say one step further, the research, it doesn't just stop there, you know, um, the researchers work with us in extension to help get the word out to growers about what was learned in that research. So I would just say the idea is the survey work is important, not just for the research, but also to get those uh, research results out to growers in the form of recommendations. So I think it all really works together. Absolutely, absolutely. 
All right. So thank you so much for talking to us today on the podcast. Um, this podcast episode is part of a series on spotted wing drosophila updates in Minnesota. So um, we will also be talking to Mary Rogers on this podcast to get an update on uh, the, the field research side of things. And again, uh, Gigi and Mary and others in this group are working closely together to make sure that the economics and the research and um, me with the extension, we're, we're all working together to help growers with this spotted wing drosophila problem, which we understand is a significant issue. So we're trying to find solutions. So thank you for coming today and we will, we'll talk to you later. Thank you so much, Annie. It was my pleasure.